like many of those that call Cross Connection Church their home church, I try to spend some time every single morning connecting with God through His Word, opening up the scriptures and reading through them systematically through a book at a time, most of the time. Sometimes I'll just read a paragraph, sometimes a chapter, sometimes as small as a verse, sometimes a few chapters, but I try to spend some time in the scriptures every single morning. And most recently I have been studying through the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews in many ways is a powerful word of warning. And if you have never read through the book of Hebrews or you haven't read through it recently, you might want to put it back on your list. It's a, a great book, very good exhortations here. And in chapter three of Hebrews, we read this beginning at verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Again, as I said, the book of Hebrews is a powerful word of warning. Those are strong words of caution there. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. The author of the book of Hebrews was writing some 2000 years ago, as the name certainly implies to Hebrew Christians, to those that had turned to faith in Christ from Judaism. And like they really were like most of the people in the early church that had turned to faith in Christ from Judaism. But at the time that the book of Hebrews was written, there was something happening within the early church that was causing Christians who were formerly faithful Jews to be drawn back to their Jewish heritage, back to their customs and their traditions, back really to the law, the law of Moses. Now, you may be surprised at how much of a draw that actually is, even for some of those that you would never suspect of being drawn back into the old patterns and trappings of what I might call religiosity, that you can be drawn back into those things and ensnared. If you read the book of Galatians in the New Testament, you'll find that even the apostle Peter was once tempted by such things. And the fascinating thing is that it isn't only the trappings of religiosity that can ensnare us. 
If you read through Exodus and Numbers, then you find that Israel's old life of enslaved bondage in Egypt was at times something that kind of drew them back. They, there were people among the children of Israel after they had left the slavery and bondage of Egypt who, as they're wandering in the wilderness, would say, we want to go back to Egypt, back to those snares, which is a crazy thing to imagine. In our studies of the scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments and our observations even of life, it can very quickly become clear that in this life, we are either taking ground or we are backsliding. We're either moving forward or we are drifting in the wrong direction. There really is no standing still. We want to be those who are moving forward and taking ground, but there is the very real danger of falling behind and backsliding, which is why the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi would give this great exhortation in Philippians chapter three. He speaks about himself there. He says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, notice this one thing I do, his, his chief focus, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, and this is key, therefore let us as many as are mature have this mind. What mind? That we would be pressing forward to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of us. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind of, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. What is Paul talking about there? He's saying that as you are progressing in maturity as a follower of Jesus Christ, your focus should be on moving forward and taking ground. Now, I bring all of this up this morning because our studies going forward from the book of Deuteronomy, which we have been studying through for many years here at Cross Connection Church, into the book that follows Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, they are going to be all about taking ground and going forward, which is why this series of teachings as we move from Deuteronomy into Joshua and as we start to go through the book of Joshua, I'm calling it taking ground because we are either going forward and taking ground or we are falling behind and backsliding. There is no standing still. And this, I think, is a very fitting focus. Just a few weeks ago here at Cross Connection Church, I shared with the body here and shared with our YouTube audience that the word that I think the Lord has impressed upon my heart going into 2023, after three years of all the craziness that we have experienced in our world and the cultural change that we have gone through in the last few years. The word that the Lord has given to me for myself, but I also think for our church is the word pivot. We, as the people of God, we must be moving forward. We must be taking ground or else we will be falling behind and backsliding. And that sometimes means that when we come to obstacles or we come to any sort of hindrance, something in our way that we need to evaluate where we were going, where we want to be getting to. And that might mean that because there's stuff in front of us, we need to pivot and we need to make some new moves or else we're going to be backsliding. And as we learn in our studying of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible and books like Hebrews, Moses 
who has been the leader of the children of Israel through the book of Deuteronomy, he is really only able to take Israel so far. They have come to a point where the promised land is in front of them. They have the Jordan River between them and the promised land. They have all this wilderness that they have just wandered through for 40 years, well, really 38 years. And Moses has been their leader, but Moses can only take them so far. Moses is the ambassador of the law of God. And Moses could not bring the children of Israel into the promised land. Now, this is, I think, an important truth because Moses is the representative of the law. And the law cannot bring you into the fullness of God's blessing and rest in the fullness of what God has for you. Just as Moses could not bring the children of Israel into the promised land, the law cannot bring you into the fullness of God's blessing. Now, that's not to say that there was something wrong with the law or that the law is bad. We discover in the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 7, that the law is holy, the commandment is holy, just, and good. But we also find, again, back in the book of Hebrews, which I've been reading through over the last several weeks, the law makes nothing perfect. It cannot make you perfectly whole or mature, and it will not get you into the fullness of what God has for you. It cannot bring you and I into that place of blessing, abundance, and rest. Now, the law governed Israel during their wilderness wanderings, and it would govern them even after they came into the promised land, but the law was not able to get them into the promised land. Moses couldn't bring Israel into the fullness of that place. And so for that, as we are going to see, Israel needed another. They needed another leader to bring them in, Joshua. And I introduced you to Joshua in our study last time, if you were here with us for our last message. So the law cannot bring you into God's abundant life. Only Christ can do that ultimately. And what is fascinating is we see this shift from Moses to Joshua, from the law to Joshua, who is kind of a representative of Christ in the Old Testament. The interesting thing is, is that the name Jesus in the Greek is Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is Joshua. So Jesus is the same name really as Joshua. So Joshua, as we're seeing from this move from Moses to Joshua and from the law to Joshua, Joshua, as we're going to discover, he points to Christ. He is like Jesus, not perfectly, but in type. And so back to that passage that I shared just a few moments ago in the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews 2,000 years ago, he reminds his readers of something that is relevant to our study this morning as we are in this space between Deuteronomy and Joshua. Moses, who is the, the speaker, the preacher in that fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, he is giving this great message. The entire book, almost the entire book, is his message to the children of Israel preparing them to go into the promised land. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is where we left off back in November, his message, his sermon has basically ended. And so now he exhorts the people. And I, I referenced this passage in our study last time in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we read these words, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, those who occupy the land that you're about to go into to possess. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And then after Moses says that to the children of Israel who are gathered there 
he calls Joshua before this group of people and we read this, then Moses called Joshua and said to him, Deuteronomy 31 verse seven, said to Joshua in the sight of all of Israel, again, same words, be strong and of good courage for you must go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And then if you skip down a little bit further to verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves to the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate, God says, I'm going to inaugurate Joshua. And so Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tabernacle of meeting. In this life, as I have said, we are either taking ground, moving forward, or we are backsliding. There is no standing still. And as good as Moses was, and as good as the law was, those things could not bring the people of Israel into their ultimate rest and blessing in the promised land. Under Moses, Israel remained outside of the blessing of the promised land. They could not go in. There remained a blessing of God's rest that they had not and could not possess under Moses. Therefore, as hard as it must have been for Israel to hear, Moses had to step aside. And so God says to Moses, behold, the, the days approach that you must die. Now that seems kind of cold, but Israel's progress depended upon faithfulness and bold steps of faith. And the death of Moses and the move from Moses to Joshua was necessary for the children of Israel to cross over the Jordan River and to come into the land that was promised to their father, Abraham, hundreds of years before. So Israel's progress depended upon faithfulness and bold steps of faith. And that's always the case. Now, Moses had been a great leader, but like the entire Exodus generation, that's what I'll call that group of people that were there in Egypt and were led out above 20 years old or uh, and on, you saw all the adults really, that entire generation that came out of Egypt and crossed over the Red Sea that was above 20 years old, Moses with them was the Exodus generation. But that Exodus generation, they could not enter the promised land. Which is interesting because this guy that I introduced you to last week and this one who's now being inaugurated as the leader that's going to bring the children of Israel into the promised land, this guy Joshua, he was a member of that Exodus generation. So why was Joshua, able to go into the promised land. Why could he lead Israel forward and Moses could not? Well, the first reason or, you know, uh, an initial way to begin to answer that question is that Moses is the representative of the law and Joshua is a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus. And the law cannot bring you into the fullness of what God has for you, just like Moses could brought, bring the children of Israel into the promised land. For that, we need Christ to bring us into the fullness of what God has for us. And for this coming into the promised land, the people of Israel needed Joshua. So that's the first kind of reason. But the second and maybe more practical reason is something that we find in a story that we discover in the book of Numbers, which is another important step in us becoming acquainted with this character, Joshua. As I shared with you in our study last time, I want you to get to know a little bit about this Joshua. So we looked last week 
into Exodus chapter 17, where Joshua was really like the first general of the Israeli Defense Force and bringing the army of the children of Israel against an enemy that came against them as soon as they had come out of Egypt and were coming into the wilderness area. But we need to get a little bit more acquainted with Joshua. So a little bit of lead up as I did last week, some kind of history to give us some context. Israel was delivered from their enslaved bondage in Egypt by the mighty hand of God through Moses. God had called Moses in Exodus chapter three and he said, I want you to go down to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, God has commanded, let my people go. Moses says, yeah, I'm not gonna do that. He resists. And so through a series of 10 plagues, the grip of Pharaoh is released from the children of Israel. And now they are allowed to follow Moses out of Egypt and they cross over the Red Sea, that whole picture that we talked about a bit in our study last time. So he brings them out of the promised land and he brings them to this place called Mount Sinai so that they could be the covenanted people of God and they could begin to move to the place that God had for them. As I shared in my message last time, this is very important to what God is doing, not just with the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but for all of the world. God's redemptive plan for all of the world involves a people and a place. And so God is redeeming that people from Egypt to bring them to the place where he will bring about his redemptive plan. So the people and the place are very, very important. God called Abraham to be the father of this people, the children of Israel, and God promised the land that we call the promised land to Abraham and his descendants that through Abraham and his descendants, all the families of the earth might be blessed through the redemptive plan of God. Israel was delivered from Egypt and they were brought by Moses into the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai. All of this you can discover in the book of Exodus. And then at Mount Sinai, God establishes his covenant with Israel. And then through Moses there at Mount Sinai, God gives Israel his law and they construct and build this tent structure that is called the tabernacle. And they establish the priesthood. And this is the place where God is going to dwell in the midst of his people and with his people and guide and direct them. So God was going to be with his people in their midst. So all of that takes place at Mount Sinai. And they stay there. They, they come out of Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai, they receive the law, they enter into the covenant, they establish the priesthood, they build the tabernacle, and they stay there as you read through the books of Exodus and you come into the book of Numbers. So I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then we've been in Deuteronomy. They spend basically two years at Sinai, which is how long it probably took them for them to establish the tabernacle and all of this sort of stuff. And then Israel partakes of the Passover. Now, if you back up a bit, the Passover started while the children of Israel were in Egypt the night before they, they left on their exodus. Two years later, they partake of the Passover meal again. And then they set out from Mount, Mount Sinai. They're leaving Mount Sinai to head to the promised land. Now, if things had gone the way that they, they should have, then even with this massive logistical craziness that it must have been to move the entire camp of Israel through the wilderness, from Sinai to the place called Kadesh Barnea, where they were supposed to come into the promised land, it shouldn't have taken all of that long. At the very least, 
they should have probably entered into the promised land in the third year after they left Egypt. So they came out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, they stay there for two years, and then they move out to go towards the promised land. And at the very least, at some point in that third year, they should have been coming into the promised land. But that's not what happened. Because we read this in the Old Testament book of Numbers at chapter 13. So if you have a Bible this morning, open to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 13. And look with me this story. I'm going to read a large part of it because it's important to understanding who this guy Joshua is. And this kind of sets the stage for the children of Israel coming into the promised land. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is the promised land. The children of Israel, they have been at Mount Sinai for two years, and now they have moved up to this place called Kadesh Barnea, which is right at the border of the promised land just two years and a few months maybe after they've come out of Egypt. And God says, send men to spy out the promised land, the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So what's happening here? God says to Moses, you're going to send 12 spies that are going to be the representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're going to see all the 12 tribes listed here. And they're going to go into the promised land to spy out the land. So Numbers chapter 13, verse 3. So Moses sent from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zachar, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, keep that name in your mind, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Saudi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nahabi, the son of Vafshi, and from the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Maki. I know you were probably wondering if I could actually get through those, and I probably didn't say those the right way, but it doesn't matter. Verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So here's Joshua again. We first were introduced to him back there in Exodus chapter 17 when he was the general leading the Israeli defense force, version 1.0, into battle against the Amalekites. Now we see Joshua again, and he's like a part of the Mossad version 1.0. He's one of the spies. So then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up into the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit in are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage. This was the same word that God had given to Moses to give to Joshua. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So this is in the fall. So it's taken a few months for them to get from their celebrating the Passover at Mount Sinai in the second year to get to this place, which would be like August or September. And so a few months has transpired. And so they went up and they spied out the land, says verse 21, from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath. And then skip down to verse 25. It says, And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. They spent a month and some days spying out the promised land there, looking throughout the entire land and gathering fruit and gathering intelligence and all this sort of stuff. So Moses prepared and he sends these 12 spies to survey the land. And among them was this guy, Joshua. Now, 
remember, this is two years and four or five months after Israel was delivered from Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They traveled a couple of months from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. They spent nearly two years at Mount Sinai. And now they are at the border of blessing, the promised land, ready to go up and take possession of the inheritance that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants 400 years before this. The people of the covenant are now right at the border of the place that God wanted and needed them to be to bring about his redemptive plan, his redemptive mission of blessing for all the families of the earth, not just for the descendants of Abraham, but for all the families of the earth. God has a redemptive plan because as we discovered in our study last week, because of Genesis chapter three and the fall that has affected all of humanity, God wants to redeem and rescue us from the bondage to sin and death. So they were in Egypt. He delivers them. They cross the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai two years there. They travel four, five, six months to get to the promised land. And now Moses sends spies into the promised land to spy out the land. Don't forget in this life, we are either taking ground or backsliding. And Israel's progress into blessing, into the promised land where they would experience rest and blessing and goodness from God. It was dependent upon faith and faithfulness. Now these things remain true 3,400 years later. As the Apostle Paul observed in the New Testament, all of these things that we read of here in the Old Testament, they were recorded for our instruction, for our learning, that we might learn these important truths. So the spies, they were sent to go see the goodness and the fruitfulness of the promised land. And, and they go up to survey this land. I'm reminded in, in just thinking about this stuff this last week of a Psalm of David from Psalm 34, where we read this, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. God sends the spies, the 12 spies, to go up into the promised land to see the fruitfulness of God's land. And there is that truth that God encamps around his people. He will bless them. He will protect them as they trust in him. So what happens with these spies that go up? Numbers chapter 13, we pick it back up in verse 26. Remember, they've been there for 40 days going throughout the land. Now they departed and they came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel. Numbers 13 verse 26 says, in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us and truly it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. They bring back this big bunch of grapes from the promised land. This is the fruitfulness of the land. Nevertheless, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. These are, as you study the Old Testament, you discover the descendants of Anak, they were giants. So the descendants of Anak are there. And then note this, if you were with us last time, this name will ring a bell in verse 29 of Numbers chapter 13. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. The Amalekites, those are the same people that we read about last week in Exodus chapter 17, that Joshua 
when he was functioning as a general of the army of Israel, fought against there in Exodus chapter 17. And we saw how that battle turned out. The same people group about which God said to Moses, if you look back in Exodus chapter 17 or note it down in your notes, God had said about these Amalekites. Now, get this. This is really important. The spies have just seen that there are Amalekites in the promised land. And two years prior, the children of Israel had defeated the Amalekites and God spoke this word to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 17, verse 14, write this for a memorial, write it down. Remember that you defeated the Amalekites. Write this down for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I, God says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called in its name, the Lord is my banner for. He said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why did God tell Moses there as they were coming to Mount Sinai and they had this battle against the Amalekites and Joshua led the children of Israel victoriously against the Amalekites? Why did God tell Moses to memorialize that battle and that victory in a book? Why do you memorialize anything? You memorialize things so that you will remember. And those memories, they often need to be remembered and recalled because we will face future enemies and battles. And so we need to remember how the Lord fought for us. We need to remember how the Lord brings us victory when we face our enemies. Because now, two years after Exodus chapter 17, two years after Joshua led the children of Israel victoriously against the Amalekites, now they are standing at the promised land, the border of the promised land, and there are Amalekites in the land. Now there's other people in the land as well, but you're gonna go and fight them. And God has already said, I will destroy them. Has God ever brought about a victory in your life? I hope that you've experienced that where God has brought about a victory in your life. Now, here's the big question. Did you write it down or did you forget? Maybe you need to write it down and remember. So two years after Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17, the children of Israel are about to face the very same foe that God gave them victory over. But they're also going to face, we're told, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. These are the same people that God two years before at Mount Sinai had said this to the children of Israel. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 23, verse 22. But if you indeed obey God's voice and do all that I speak, Moses says, then God says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Victory, blessing, and rest are assured to those that trust in God and walk in faithful obedience. Note this clearly. Victory, blessing, and rest are assured to those that trust in God and walk faithfully in obedience to Him. The children of Israel are supposed to go into the promised land. They're going to face these enemies that God two years before in Exodus chapter 23 had told them, I will cut them off before you if you walk in obedience and you follow me. And so now God is calling them to that. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and speak to the Bible student that is listening to what I just said a moment ago, where I say victory, blessing, and rest are assured to those who trust in God and walk in faithful obedience. And I want to pause and talk to the Bible student that is thinking right now, it sure seems like you are talking about works salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let me remind you that Israel, 
they have already been delivered from their enslaved bondage in Egypt by God's grace, by his power, by his might. They have been redeemed and rescued. But their experience of the fullness of God's blessing, their experience of the fullness of rest in God, in the promised land, required their faithful trust and obedience. I can't help but wonder how much of God's blessing and how much of his victory and rest remains outside of our reach and grasp because of our own stubborn disobedience. God has rescued you. He's saved you by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And yet there is so much of God's victory and rest and blessing that he has for you. And yet we are not taking hold of it. We're not laying hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of us because we're not forgetting what is behind and pressing on towards what is before us in faith and faithful obedience. Far too many are content to wander in the wilderness when the promised land awaits. So what happened back in Numbers? The 12 spies are sent into the promised land to spy it out. And they come back and they say, hey, look, the land is filled with fruit. It is a good land, the land of milk and honey. But there's also some, some bad dudes there in the land, some giants, and there are these great peoples there. So verse 28, Numbers chapter 13. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak, the giants there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people as they're restless, as they're hearing this report before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are able to overcome these foes. I love the heart and mindset of Caleb. The spies are saying, listen, there are some really big enemies and foes before us. And Caleb speaks up and says, all right, it's time for us to go. God told us back in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites would be destroyed before us. He told us back in Exodus chapter 23 that God would destroy the Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all the ites before us. Israel's progress depended upon faithfulness and bold steps of faith, just like your progress depends on faithfulness and bold steps of faith. And a man of faith from among the 12 spies named Caleb stood up and boldly proclaims, it's ours. Let's go. Let's go up into the land. But verse 31, but the men who had gone up with Caleb said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than us. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are great men of stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anna came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Please don't miss the very last words of that passage I just read. Read it very, very carefully. Notice what it says there. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. Would you circle, highlight, underline that word own there? We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. How do you see the obstacles and hurdles that lie before you? Do you see those things through your own sight? Do you walk by sight and not by faith? Or do you see those with the eyes of faith that sees the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords over all of these things? So the 10 spies, I'll say 10 at this point, but Caleb is mentioned as one who stands against the spies. 
the 10 spies say there are bad, huge giants in the land. We can't go in because we're like nothing before them in our own sight. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. In Jewish tradition and history, this took place in our month of August on what is called the 9th of Av. That's the month of Av in the Jewish calendar. It's called the saddest day in Israel's history. And so they all wept that night and all of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us into this land or unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Let's find somebody else, not Moses, to take us back to Egypt. Remember, you're either moving forward, progressing, taking land, or you are backsliding. There is no standing still. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all of the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, there he is again, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land that we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. I asked the question a little bit ago before we went to the book of Numbers. Why was Joshua, who was a member of the Exodus generation, why was he allowed to lead Israel into the promised land? This right here is the answer to the question. Only one other individual with Joshua from the Exodus generation would be permitted to enter into the land. Can you guess who that one other would be? Who was the plus one, Joshua plus one? I began this morning with Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, this rebellion in the day of the trial in the wilderness, this wilderness at Kadesh Barnea, when your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, that Exodus generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath that they would not enter my rest. That reference that the author of the book of Hebrews is referencing there is this story from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. God says, I was angry with that Exodus generation, so I swore that they would not enter into the land of rest. Numbers chapter 14, verse 29, the carcasses of you who have complained against me, God says, shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. Why did that Exodus generation from Israel fail to take possession of the land that was promised to them in that third year after they came out of Egypt? They failed to take possession because of unbelief. They could not take ground. Instead, they would end up wandering aimlessly in the wilderness for 38 years. You see, their progress was dependent upon faith and faithfulness. Victory was assured if they would trust and obey, but they could only see the obstacles. They could only see the giants and the enemies. They could only see all of the trouble, even though the land was a good land. However, 
Joshua and Caleb, they could see differently because the eyes of faith see him who is enthroned above all earthly powers and thrones. They could see that the Lord had given them the land. I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure there's a valuable lesson to learn there from Joshua and Caleb. And we're going to see that these lessons that Joshua and Caleb learned in their initial stages of coming out of Egypt, what Joshua learned when he went to battle against the Amalekites and he saw that God was his shield and God was the one who was going to carry for him and provide for him and give him salvation. Now he's learning another valuable lesson that God is going to be the one that's going to take you into the promised land and defeat your enemies before you as you trust and obey. He had the eyes of faith. So did Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. There's a valuable lesson there for sure. And God help us to learn from the mistakes of others. All these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 or so. He wrote these things down. God made sure that they were written down in a book. Exodus chapter 17, write these things down in a book so that you and I could learn from the mistakes of others, that Exodus generation that did not have the eyes of faith. But we're walking by sight and not by faith. Help us to learn from the mistakes of others and not to have to remake the same mistakes ourselves. Learning from the mistakes of others is what they call wisdom. And I hope that we would gain some wisdom as we get to know Joshua. Father God, I pray that you would instruct us, teach us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive what it is that you might speak to us from this text this morning. Lord, in this life, we're either taking ground or we are backsliding. And if we are going to progress and move forward and take ground, then it's going to require faithfulness and bold steps of faith. And so, God, I'd help you, I, I pray that you'd help us to walk in faith and obedience, trusting you for the outcomes and moving forward because you have so much more for us to lay hold of. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>